Hello and welcome to Curator Chats. My name is Billy Wallwinkle. I'm an assistant curator and oral historian for the Detroit Historical Society, and I'm also a graduate student in Wayne State's public history program. I get asked a lot, what exactly is public history? And I had that same question myself when I was approached about the program. And if you don't know what public history is, that's perfectly fine. That's what we're here for. Each episode, I'm going to be talking to a different public history practitioner about their work in the city of Detroit. Journalists, anthropologists, historians, museum educators, artists, educators. There are so many great people doing public history work that don't really consider themselves public historians, but their work counts nonetheless. I want each episode to offer a different avenue for people who want to get into this work. There are so many amazing opportunities out there for future public historians, and if one of these episodes can provide inspiration to the next generation, mission accomplished. Thank you all for joining me. I hope you enjoy these really fantastic chats because they are my favorite people, their work is amazing, and I hope you enjoy yourselves as much as I got to. In this episode, I sit down for a chat with journalist Bill McGraw. Bill may not be a classically trained historian, but for the past 40 years, he has endeavored to bring the history of Detroit to the masses through his work in the Detroit Free Press, Bridge Magazine, and Deadline Detroit. A champion of expanding not only Detroit's historical record, but people's understanding and awareness of it. We talk about the importance of writing not only about the positives, but also the negatives that Detroit has experienced, and why it's crucial that Detroiters have a fuller understanding of their history and the different ways we can get it to them. Here's my chat with Bill. Thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me today, Bill. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You have been working as a journalist in the city since 1972, right? Uh, Yes, exactly. What birthed your your love for journalism. I, I, I really want to start off our chat here because so much of your work is rooted in, in the skills that you learned and honed being a journalist. I'd have to say the first thing that got me pointed towards journalism was we always had the free press and the news in our house. And my mother, especially my dad was a reader, but my mom was a big reader. Uh, she read all the bestsellers and she had a lot of, uh, you know, um, the big books around. Um, and she took my brother and I to the library uh, at least once a week uh, when we were little. So it was a habit that we just sort of fell into. And then um, I actually wanted, I had a cousin who was an FBI agent and I always wanted to be an FBI agent until I was about 16 and I realized I didn't think I could work for Mr. Hoover. And so I really didn't know what I was gonna do. And, you know, it was no hurry, I was only 16, 17, but in 1969, when I was 18, my mother gave me um, a bestseller. She said, I think you might like this. And it was about the New York Times by Gay Talese. It was a number one book. And it was just like a history of the New York Times uh, done by one of the great practitioners of the so-called new journalism. So it was a really good book. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a journalist. So that was a few years before Watergate and everything. I had a jump start on a lot of uh, people from my generation who decided to get into uh, journalism after Watergate, which was a very legitimate reason. When you first got interested in journalism through that through that book. Was it just journalism or was it a history bent just like that book was? Um, it was more just journalism. Um, I, I think I had an interest in history then. I liked to read biographies even as a kid. 
I remember reading child biographies of like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and um, U.S. Grant and all that. But I was really just interested in journalism at the very beginning and didn't see as I later on, you know, saw um, where there was opportunities to, to mix journalism and history. But at the, at, in the early years, it was really just journalism and newspapers. I was one of these classic uh, journalists who, as a student, was not good in math, but I was good in reading and writing in English. And so um, I was kind of channeled, I guess, towards a writing career of some sort. So as you're working for the free press, when, when do you start seeing more history focus uh, articles and work start creeping into, into what you're doing? You know, it actually had a real uh, specific start. In 1986, um, the Free Press was looking for ways to mark uh, Michigan's upcoming sesquicentennial the next year when Michigan was going to turn 150 years old as a state. And so I suggested doing a book that would show Michigan history through the free press, since the free press was a few years older than the state, actually, having started in 1831. And I, we wanted to make it so besides just front pages, with a lot of news, which a lot of newspapers did, we wanted ours to show sports pages, comics pages, ads to show how, uh, you know, things had changed over literally the, the centuries that the free press was in business. And so uh, I did all the research and I was in the um, um, graduate library at U of M looking at their uh, microfilm. They had um, the same kind of microfilm the Detroit library and Wayne State had, but it was air conditioned and the machinery always worked. So it was worth driving to Ann Arbor to, to work there. I was looking at the free press from 1854, looking for something. I don't remember what it was, but I came across a story and the headline was simply N-word, N-word, N-word. And that's what, re I mean, to put it mildly, it surprised me. I had always thought the free press was a um, abolitionist newspaper, um, but uh, that started me getting really curious about the history of the free press, which led me to realize there had been slavery in Detroit, which, you know, I was never taught in school. That's what led me to, as I was uh, working as an adult on my degree at Wayne State, to switch my major from French to history. So it all started in the, um, as a journalist, but working on a research project at the Graduate Library at U of M. And it's sort of that, uh, just in general, made me over the years realize that there was a way to incorporate history, or that sometimes history made news. I guess is a way to put it. Newspapers don't really write about history except in certain uh, situations. Like for instance, when Detroit turned 300 in 2001, we did a whole series of stories about uh, incidents in Detroit history. But normally history sort of only comes in as an afterthought in stories with a little background and whatever. But sometimes history can be news and we can talk about that as we go on. While you're working on your, your history degree at Wayne State, how did it how did it feel going from writing, say, the, the first draft of history as a journalist to being a historian and working on that second draft? Was was it a um, weird transition? Uh, it wasn't weird, but it was interesting. The reason I didn't get my degree in a normal age was I started, I got a job at the Free Press so early, a part-time job, and then I got a full-time job when I was 25. So I never uh, 
finished my degree in my 20s. When I was in my 40s is when I decided to go back. And it was right at the time when I'd come across that early free press and the story and everything. I, I do remember how, um, how professors talked about newspapers, generally positive, that they are the first draft of history, that they sometimes can be inaccurate, that they can be um, colored by ideology. I think it actually was a really helpful for me as a, an adult reporter, literally in my 40s, having already, you know, 20 years as a reporter to get the perspective of real historians, people who had PhDs, who had spent their whole lives studying certain things, and who had a great perspective on what role newspapers played in the writing of history in research. So it was interesting to me, like I covered Coleman Young uh, really during his last term as mayor uh, from 89 to 93. And I remember writing uh, sort of his political obit when he, when he announced he wasn't going to run for a sixth term. And I thought, you know, I mean, I was aware that uh, some hundred years from now, somebody might be reading my story. And uh, like I was reading stories from Detroit a hundred years earlier. And I was, you know, had that in mind as far as trying to think of uh, readers in the 22nd century and uh, what would they want to know? Just like you really have to think of readers tomorrow, what they want to know and how to best explain it. But that was present in my mind. And I thought it was, uh, so I always valued the fact that I was going to school, had this sort of realization about the bigger world of, of how my stories could live on, not because they were my stories, but I was writing about real historical events. You touched on something that I, I have to deal with a lot in that in, in working with my professors who have PhDs and who are coaching people who are getting PhDs, was there was there any tension with, say, your style of writing? Yes. <laughs> yes. It's funny you say that. I hadn't even thought of that, but I wouldn't call it tension. It was tension, but it was mild tension. And I certainly could adjust. But a couple of my professors, when I turned in papers, they would tell me that, uh, you know, like my one sentence paragraphs weren't, wouldn't work in a um, history paper like they would in a newspaper. And that I had to be more analytical in my writing for my history classes in a way that wasn't the real style of American journalism. I mean, there is room for analysis in um, American newspapers, but a general news story doesn't have that kind of analysis that a history paper has to have. Is that what you're thinking? Oh, yeah. Did you see over time any like a marriage between the two? Or do you still kind of keep those two things separate? Sometimes I realized as I got older and even more experienced in journalism that there is room for both analysis and more background information depending on the story. Now, one thing that happened right about this time in the 80s was the, and well, and really in the early 90s, was did the digital world suddenly came upon us. You know, in some ways, length didn't matter anymore for the web, where it still mattered for the free press. The free press always had, um, even though it was a big paper, it was like, you know, for many years in the top 10 as far as readers went in America. And it was, a, you know, one of the better um, regional papers in the country. But it had a, a small news hole. While there was room for longer stories, many stories had to be really tightly written. That was good as far as um, honing your skills, as far as telling the story quickly and all that, and not boring people. Once the web came along, uh, you know, all of bets were off as far as length went. You know, obviously the stories that were in the web were also in the paper, but you could write longer for the web. And there's where that's where there was room for um, more analysis, more background information. When you're in your journalism mode, or even like in your say your quote unquote like light history mode, like what age group do you write for? Specific question. But for in the museum world, it's 
all about keeping it roughly a middle school level for us. We we want our sentences to be simple. We don't want too many commas. We want people to be able to read it with ease, adults and children. Do you find yourself doing the same thing when you're uh, when you're working in the newspaper? Well, it's really interesting you ask that because um, your goals as a museum writer are similar to I think what newspaper goals are to uh, write in a way that's understandable to people of varying ages. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not naive about young people reading newspapers these days, but when newspapers were really your only source of news, young people did read newspapers. And so obviously did old people. While you wanted to write in a streamlined, informed way, it's not true. A lot of people used to say to me, I heard uh, you've got to write at like a sixth grade level. No one ever told me to write at a sixth grade level or a 12th grade level. But what they did say is you had to make sure that the readers didn't have any questions when they read your story. You had to answer all the questions. And if there was an obvious question that couldn't be answered, you had to explain, we don't know the answer to this question. And um, when I wrote, I really thought of people I knew. And I thought, is this story going to make sense to my Aunt Catherine, who was older than me? And is it going to make sense to my parents or my brother and other people? You know, in other words, and I also thought of how certain people are going to find this story really interesting. And I I would maybe put something in there that would even be more interesting for them. So I think most reporters had, you know, if not real people, just sort of concepts of people in their mind of who they're writing for and who their audience is. In in the same vein, I want to talk about, for me, what probably the, the go-to public history book on, about Detroit, and that's the Detroit Almanac that you helped co-edit. How did that book come about and how did how did its format come about because for when whenever people say do you have like a go-to book that like just shows like a good snapshot of the city i always point to the almanac because it's it's accessible it's organized and it tells you a lot of history well that's really nice to hear and so my answer has to be self-serving because the almanac was my idea and i designed it but the co-editor peter gravilovich who's a good friend was enormously an enormous part of it and but i i kind of laid out the the rudiments of it before or Peter and I started working on it together. Uh, and I'm proud of that, but um, I don't want to sound immodest about it. But basically, that also came up because the Free Press was looking for a way to um, publish something to go along with Detroit's 300th anniversary, just like it had 15 years earlier for the state's anniversary. So I raised my hand again and said, let's do this thing. And they went for it. The Free Press had kind of a publishing arm then. You know, they, we did like uh, columnist books and cookbooks and lots of things, photo books from our great photo staff. And so um, they were ready to go on this. In fact, amazingly, when I think today of the Free Press with its much more reduced staff in I worked on the book for uh, over two years, and uh, during that whole time, I only wrote one story for the paper, and that was when the Rouge plant blew up, and I think it was 2000 or 1999, and it was sort of all hands on deck that day. But other than that, I didn't write any stories for two years. You know, the Free Press had over 300 journalists on the staff then, and they could do without me for two years. It was, so it was a great experience doing the Almanac. And as far as the organization goes, I didn't have really any sort of, um, well, I did consult some other Almanacs to see how they were done. And I just kind of put the, um, uh, the, the pattern together in a way that seemed logical. You know, there were, you know, how do you, uh, you got to deal with, um, if you're having an Almanac, you want to be somewhat comprehensive. You got to say, 
say something about all the cities in Metro Detroit. You got to have sports. You got to have crime. Um, you've got to have something about big business, given you know Detroit's role in the uh, world economy over the uh, decades. You know, I don't have any um, magic explanation of that, other than it was just sort of um, what seemed logical at the time. And from your perspective. Because I, I called it a, a, a public history book. How do you view the Almanac? Where where do you see it's like? Where do you see it on the shelf at Barnes and Noble? You know, I, when it was on the shelves, it was generally obviously just in the local um, you know interest section. That's kind of the way I never thought of it necessarily as public history, as just as much as local history uh, of local interest. You know, as a reference tool. You know, I thought of it as something that both adults um, would enjoy, would profit from, as far as maybe set bar arguments. Um, that's a thing over the years before the internet also. I was a sports writer for five years at the Free Press and the phone would constantly be, I'm not, I'm serious, constantly be ringing with people who wanted you to settle bets, whether they were drunk people in bars or gamblers in Las Vegas. They didn't have any other ready, uh, you know, place to find their information out before phones, cell phones and everything. And so they would call and say, you know, specific questions like what was Ty Cobb's lifetime average or who could jump higher, uh, Bob Cousy or, uh, you know, Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> I thought it was uh, the book, the Almanac could answer people's questions, um, both intelligent questions and bar generated questions and, uh, and be entertaining and also be, you know, something that would be a tribute to Detroit's history. That's what we were celebrating is Detroit's 300th birthday. And that was the whole point of the book. Want to know more about Detroit's history, but you don't know where to start? Don't worry, I got you covered. Head on down to the Detroit Historical Museum and the Dawson Great Lakes Museum to learn all there is to know about the city, where it's been, where it is, and you might even get some hints on where it's going. You can start your trip today at DetroitHistorical.org. Don't pass it up. Detroit starts here. So in a departure from the more digestible history that the Almanac covers with sports and geography and everything like that, you've done, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of work detailing the city's racist, contentious history. What has what has delving into that uh, subject matter been like for you, both as a historian and as a journalist? Well, I don't really think I'm an historian. Uh, I would, I'm a history student. Uh, you know, I have like two or three courses towards a master's degree, which I'm never going to get now. Um, but Oh, um, you didn't graduate from Wayne? Oh, I got a, I got an undergrad degree, but I also have a couple classes towards a master's and I don't have a master's. You know, I, I, I think people who are historians at least have to have a master's degree to call themselves a historian, really. Um, Fair. But um, at the Free Press, we were encouraged to have, like if you were covering, you know, a lot of people had beats, uh, city hall, federal court, police, beat and but we were encouraged to have mini beats to have things that we might be interested in you know we don't have enough people to cover them as a full-time beat but you pay attention to them and when there's news you write about them a thing i wrote about a lot that doesn't have anything to do with history was the fire department. I realized early on that we don't really cover the fire department on a uh, regular basis. And I knew a bunch of firefighters and I thought their work is interesting. And it turns out 
that Detroit was burning like no other city in America was during the 80s and 90s and 70s for that matter. And also the fire department for a lot of different reasons was then uh, very white and it clashed a lot with the black administration of Coleman Young. So there was lots of reasons to do stories then. But I also realized that history could be a mini beat as I was studying history at Wayne at the time, that there were times when um, history can become a story. So uh, that's really the motivation, the sort of the fact that we were encouraged to have mini beats. And I saw that uh, in a way that, um, you know, I guess nobody else on the staff was really paying attention to that. So that's that's what I did. And so as you've been as you've been working on that beat and focusing on it, you you produced stuff not only for the 300 and talking about the Underground Railroad, but you produced stuff on Detroit slavery. You've been you've been published in a couple different books now, including the one we both worked on together, the Detroit 1967 Origins, Impacts, Legacies. What has it been like being able to take that that smaller, that shorter form worked for the newspaper and blowing it up and making it a much larger piece? You know, I discovered um, something that that most people I don't think were aware of, I wasn't, that just like uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and Virginia, Detroit area had slavery from, uh, had enslaved people from the European founding in 1701 until the 1820s. I discovered that through reading about the free press history and the fact that, um, for one thing, the free press in the eight, you know, the free press has a very notorious history in the 19th century itself, which many people aren't aware of. The two people who were the money people behind the free press in 1831, Joseph Campo and um, John R. Williams, who was Campo's nephew, were both uh, slave owners earlier. Nobody was owning slaves in 1831. But so that got me interested in, wow, there was slavery in Detroit. Um, I definitely was paying attention in history class in high school and grade school, and that was never brought up. But I also found that once you scratch the surface, yeah, it's not in any textbooks, rarely, almost never was written about by the free press or the news. But once you scratch the surface, academic writing had enormous amount of information about, not enormous amount, but a certain amount, significant amount about slavery in Detroit. So I saw my job as translating stuff from the academic uh, writing world and books and, and articles and, you know, scholarly uh, magazines to the readers of the free press. You know, that's a reporter's job uh, doing that in lots of different areas. I was suited for it in the sense that I was a history major and I was really into the, into the subject. The free press hasn't really acknowledged its history yet, but I think it's preparing to do so. I'm really glad that one of the first, if not the first, journalists to write about at length uh, slavery in Detroit. It's become an issue that's much wider known now. A couple people have written books about it, including um, Tia Miles, right, former U of M professor who did a uh, you know, superb book about slavery in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that, you know, I mean, it's certainly now uh, issues of, you know, Black history and uh, have become really on the forefront of discussion about contemporary America. So it's another place where there's, you know, room for history in current events, given the, you know, Black Lives Matter movement over the last several years and especially what's going on in the last year and a half in, in the U.S. And the same thing with Henry Ford. When I was, you know, I retired a few years ago and uh, I had this great retirement gig editing the Dearborn Historian quarterly, which um, really went out to about 300 uh, subscribers from the Dearborn History Museum and went to a few libraries. When I realized it was the 100th anniversary a couple of years ago of Henry Ford buying the Dearborn Independent Newspaper, it seemed like the perfect time for Dearborn to learn 
every everybody knows Henry, not everybody, but most people know Henry Ford had anti-Semitic ideas. So did Charles Lindbergh, but Charles, and so did a lot of people in America, but they didn't have the wherewithal that Ford had, A, and B, they didn't take all those resources, money and manpower, and use it to create a newspaper and then books that proselytize these anti-Semitic ideas. So I decided it was, you know, a good time to uh, do the story, really detailed story about everything you wanted to know about Henry Ford and anti-Semitism. The mayor of Dearborn didn't like it and, you know, suppressed the issue. And that's, you know, that was well covered and it was unfortunate. He's been, a, he was a pretty good mayor, but I think he made a bad decision on that score. Censoring it was one thing, but completely forgetting that the, the Streisand effect exists was the other. That That's what I mean. It was like so- three uh, people would have read it, but now it hit the New York Times. Well, exactly. And it's so ironic because myself and the former editor of the historian, who is a friend of mine, he's a former editor at the Detroit News, David Good, who did a very excellent job with the historian for several years. When we heard that there was a possibility that the uh, magazine was going to be suppressed, we went and talked to the head of the museum, and we, we we're almost on our knees telling him that this is going to blow up in your face. If the mayor kills the issue, it's like something, and I, I even said to him, quote, this is something the New York Times will cover. And sure enough, five days later, I get an email from a reporter at the New York Times, and they did a very well-read story, and they linked to the story. I mean, we, you know, that's another thing that the mayor did this in the digital era when there were plenty of other avenues to get the story out. Just on Deadline Detroit alone, tens of thousands of people read it. And the Jerusalem Post or, you know, two or three publications in Israel published stories. Hundreds of thousands of people read it, whereas on a good day, on a good year, maybe a thousand people would have read it normally. <laughs> I, I never I never had to deal with censorship on that scale, but I, I have had presentations I've put together for people get rejected. I've had a lot of scowls in my direction, especially during presentations and talks and stuff. How do you handle that? How do you how do you grapple with that 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 pressure to either uh, let it go or change possibly even change something? Well, like I said, given the digital world, well, let's just talk about Henry Ford because that was really the I can't I'd have to really think hard if anything I ever wrote before was censored. I mean, uh, I don't recall ever at the free press. Uh, now you're always edited. Sometimes I would have a discussion with my editors. Uh, maybe I thought they were being a little too cautious. Usually though, it was it was almost never an ideological type of situation. It was a more sometimes matters of taste. And I would say, oh, our, our readers can handle that. And they would say, oh, it's a little too much for a family newspaper, that type of thing. So the only time I really could say that I was censored in all the years I've written was the Henry Ford Dearborn historian situation. I can't complain about that. I mean, the mayor was portrayed by anyone who covered it as the villain. He was the guy who uh, censored it or who stopped the publication. He took all the heat. I was, you know, really um, had a positive light shown on me, you know, and so um, as far as dealing with it, it was so easy. I was able to um, not only anticipating what the mayor might do, I was able to um, get the story out in a way that, like we just said, it never would have gotten out beforehand. Uh, I have to say that that incident of being censored turned out to be a very memorable occasion, really. You know, uh, I don't feel that I really suffered for it at all. And uh, I'm sorry it happened.
Interested in exploring a career in history but don't know where to start? It's time for you to go visit Wayne State University, a premier research university in the heart of Detroit. Wayne is home to historians ready to introduce to you what history, public history, and digital humanities has to offer. Check out their work today on Twitter at History at Wayne. So one thing you touched on earlier, as, as a journalist, what you do especially when you write your history articles is that you take you boil down what the academics have written and, and for the public and as a public historian I feel that that's one of my core responsibilities something that took a long time for you to kind of hone that skill because that's one of my main main jobs not only as a curator for the Detroit Historical Museum but also as a public historian in general I I get asked all the time about rather dense topics and I have to somehow boil it down to, to four sentences <laughs> right right well, you know, um, I find the fact that scholars have worked on a lot of these issues is just fantastic. I mean, uh, if you are a, um, a history professor, you know, you have your specialty, let's say it's Nazi Germany, and you've spent um, much of your career, you've read everything anyone's written probably in English and in German about Nazi Germany, even within Nazi Germany, you've perhaps, you know, um, narrowed your focus to, uh, you know, Hitler before he became the leader of Germany. There's so much information that um, normal people, even normal, really intelligent people never read in academia that is just sitting there waiting to be hatched. <laughs> or, uh, you know, sort of massaged into a newspaper story. And so um, I find that fabulous that there's, you know, on De in Detroit itself, or on Detroit itself, you know, people have been writing about Detroit even before it got interesting, quote unquote, in the last 40 years as its decline became so pronounced and, and it became such a, a matter of interest to so many people in so many different fields. I always found it exciting to go like to the Burton or to go to U of M's library or the Wayne State libraries and see what, what's on the shelves. And more interestingly even is, especially now in the digital age, to read in the various, there's so many academic uh, journals that, uh, you know, just cities alone, there's probably three or four different, maybe even more, several really good journals filled with stories about, you know, sometimes very broad topics or sometimes very, very normal topics, you know, like about people who worked in the cigar rolling factories in Detroit. Uh, or on the other hand, somebody, people have written about the 1943 race riot. I just find it exciting. There's that, that it's interesting to me as a history major, and it's interesting to me as a journalist to be able to tell more, allow more people to understand what the experts have said about this. And what, and also, especially today, it's so interesting with this huge debate about, um, you know, how to teach about racism in schools in America. The, the reaction against the fact that people are getting serious about teaching about race and racism is, you know, so overblown, I think, because it was done so poorly in the past, not only when I was in school, but I paid attention to what my daughter, who's now in her late 20s, which she was uh, reading and being taught in school, and it was really a very um, sort of vanilla form of, uh, of uh, history of both local history and national history. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons people are, uh, voters can kind of be ill-informed on issues that people say they're out to uh, hurt America, but 
people really never um, sort of reckoned with what slavery meant for America. I haven't checked since my daughter was in school, but she did not learn about slavery in, in Detroit. She learned about slavery in the South. You know, uh, it was another generation that grew up totally ignorant of something that has l lasted as long in Detroit as the auto industry has lasted. So it was a very significant part of Detroit's history that's been totally obliterated from history books, basically, until recently. I didn't even learn about slavery in the North when I was... Uh... When no, I was the kid, uh -uh. and I was, and I'm the same age. Right, right. You know, I mean, New York City was not only were there enslaved people in New York City, but its banks and investors were financing the slave trade. And um, you know, when New York City discovered slavery, when they um, uh, were building a building in Lower Manhattan and came across a, a graveyard that researchers showed was a graveyard of black people, many of who had been enslaved. New York, being New York, with all the museums and intellectuals, suddenly slavery in New York. This was in the 90s became a, a, you know, a very interesting issue that people knew about and everything. So maybe it's time for the uh, Detroit Historical Museum to do something on slavery in Detroit. I think it's actually overdue, really. I completely agree with that. I'm working on it, actually. That okay. I'm not even kidding. I... All right, well, if I can help you in any way. Um... Oh, don't worry. You'll be getting a call. <laughs> <laughs> but so this, I want to tie this up a little bit, Ken, because I have a, one of your, I have a quote from you that I love. And uh, you once said, uh, Detroit is a great place to be a journalist. The news isn't always good, but there's a lot of news. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who has spent the vast majority of my career talking about 67 and specifically ra race relations between say like 1920 and 1970, that is accurate <laughs> to say uh, the least. Yeah, right. You know, if you really look at um, news in cities in America over the last 45 years, 50 years. Um, obviously, New York makes more news than any other city, but LA, Chicago. But once you get past three or four cities, Florida, Florida makes a lot of news, crazy news sometimes. You know, Detroit's uh, certainly in the top 10, if not in right about the next five of newsmaking cities in America. People would come to the free press from other um, cities um, in, in somewhat sizable cities. I remember uh, um, a guy came to the free press from Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. And um, he said, we would have news meetings every day to figure out what are we going to put in the paper? Whereas at the free press, we have news meetings about what are we going to not be able to put in the paper? <laughs> You know, so Detroit was a very exciting place to be a reporter. And again, you know, a lot of the news wasn't positive. The years I worked in the free press were years of, uh, by any statistic, years of decline for Detroit. But on the other hand, there were also years when Detroiters were fighting back and trying to make Detroit a livable place and fighting against forces that no one person could control. Deindustrialization, you know, poverty, racism. Those were huge topics people were taking on in Detroit. And the story of them doing that was exciting and was very newsworthy too. And um, that made a lot of news. So in the negative news, there's always a positive story about what people are trying to do about it and whether they're, you know, succeeding or failing. And then people succeeded in a lot of different ways and um, was going on. So um, that's those are the reasons why Detroit was a very fun and fulfilling place to be a reporter. I have to completely agree. When, when I first started out, I was doing 95% of my research was on the lead up to 67 and all the, like, uh, the issues uh, with race relations and police. And it was all dour. It was very depressing because I could, I would read it in whatever book or article I was using. And then I could also watch it on the news at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I was worried about getting burnt out on 
doing that work, but I also found not not overblowing, but focusing on the victories along the way and right. the different positive things that have come out of these tragedies. It helped a lot. And mm-hmm. that's one of the, this is like one of the, the small things I wanted to get out of this podcast and in doing these chats is that history and journalism are not always happy things to do or to, to research or partake in. I want to help provide little tips and tricks to to getting into this field. So again, focus on the positives, people. They're they're, they're there. You just got to maybe hunt for them a little bit harder than the sad stuff that's at the surface. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. Exactly. Story of the way people have um, fought back. I mean, especially Black Detroiters, how they have fought back against Detroit's deindustrialization and all that um, is a very, um, you know, moving and interesting story. Oh, I'm going to, I want to finish us off with one other quote of yours that I love just because I think it's good for for young historians, for aspiring historians, because you said once you become a reporter, it's almost a natural feeling that when something presents itself that no one knows you want to tell it right and i feel that that passion lends itself absolutely to history if you find something that no one knows write about that don't write about the lions again the same story that everyone knows don't write about the war of 1812 or the surrender of detroit that people know about if you can find that niche thing that no one's heard that and like you said, going through the archives, going through the, the microfilm at U of M where there's air conditioning, <laughs> like find that small stuff. Far more rewarding than writing the same old, same old. Before we go, I asked Bill to tell me about a historian or a public historian whose work has really impacted the public and someone that he believes the public should know more about. Here's Bill talking about historian Tom Segru. An historian who has written about Detroit, who um, I admire, is Tom Segru. I got to know Tom first by telephone uh, in 1996, when uh, somebody gave me a copy of his book, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, which uh, has gone on in 25 years to become the book that explains and analyzes what happened or why, why Detroit became like it did from the 50s through the 21st, early 21st century. The newspapers were on strike at the time, and I wrote about Tom's book for the strike paper, the Detroit Sunday Journal. I'm very proud that it was the first mention of Tom's book anywhere in public. It's been written about many times since then. I think it's such an original work. It's such a well-researched work. When you just look at the footnotes alone, they're voluminous and they're so detailed and there's so many different sources he used. I still find it amazing that uh, as he was a young historian at the time, uh, it was originally his um, uh, PhD dissertation that he was able to sort through all this material and come up with such a coherent book. It's done more really than any other book to help people understand the reasons why Detroit is like it is today. Thank you for listening to The Chat. Curator Chats is produced by Granville Avenue Productions. It is executive produced, edited, and hosted by myself, Billy Wallwinkle. Production assistance provided by Emily Wallwinkle and Brendan Roney. A special thanks to Bill McGraw for sitting down to chat with me today. For more information, visit historywithbilly.com. And now, to leave you with a quote from journalist Norman Cousins. History is a vast early warning system. Until next time, everyone.